Thank you very much, Melody and Xander and everybody up here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Father, we're grateful as we've just sung for the incredible work of Calvary that brings us near to you. The thought of you forgiving and covering all of our sins, Lord, is absolutely unbelievable. To think that, Lord, you knew everything about us, all of our sinful words and thoughts and deeds, and yet chose to bring us near, to make us your very own, Lord, to bring us into your family forever. More than that, Lord, that you've planned to allow us to live with you forever in eternity. What an incredibly glorious truth. So we praise you, we thank you, we rejoice in the truth of the gospel today. And we pray, Lord, if there's someone here that's not yet come to Christ and experienced this incredible, glorious gift and work of salvation, that today, Lord, today would be the day they would experience this love. So help us now as we continue to worship you, Lord, now just through the word of God, both in hearing it, preaching it, and of course, most importantly, Lord, by faith responding to it in a way that brings you honor and a way that makes us more like your son. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's open our Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. We've been going through Isaiah in our church. I just finished the book of Isaiah actually last Sunday, and so this is fresh on my heart and mind, and I thought we would spend some time looking at one of my favorite passages here, Isaiah 42 and verses 1 through 3. They may not be super familiar to you yet. Uh, They will be by the time that we're done. So Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. And while you're turning there, it's good to see you. You all look so wonderful, and it is always a a joy to our family to come back here. We have great memories of being with you. And it's incredible that I was, I think, 30 years old when we first came here. That is crazy. 30 years old. And you all tolerated a bunch of nonsense, and I appreciate that. And uh, we grew a lot here, and I'm very grateful for my time. And we love you. We still um, obviously are connected to you through a lot of friendships and even family and, of course, uh, Pastor Cody. And we're very grateful for his ministry here. Uh, But thank you for the way you've treated him and received him. And we're grateful for the Lord's work in his life. But it's just a joy to be here. Y'all got a Popeye's now. (laughs) If someone would have told me that, we would have stayed. No, I'm, I'm kidding. It's not good. All right, well, we don't want to have a church fight already this morning. (laughs) Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, and here's the title of the message. I think it's in the bulletin. It's the meekness of Christ, the meekness of Christ. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Are you guys okay with standing to read? Do you all do that? Is that okay? All right, let's stand to read the word of God. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Let me read verse four too. It's not part of the text, but he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Father, we ask for insight into the word of God, something that only the spirit of God can do. We can't do this, Lord, just through academic pursuits, but Father, we need your work in opening our eyes to see these spiritual truths. So do that, Lord, I pray and Turn our hearts towards you as we seek to apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Meekness, that's a word you probably haven't heard a lot this week. Probably not a word that you use very often, especially given the context of the culture that we're living in. You say, Mark, what is meekness? Well, I can define it almost instantly by saying it's the opposite of the way that people treat each other in the world today. That's probably the quickest way to define this word meekness. We live in a culture where things have shifted very rapidly. In fact, since I came here, the world has changed a whole lot, has it not? Our country has changed, but the world over has changed. And one of the areas where our culture has changed that we probably could not have predicted, at least as easily as some other things, is the overall lack of civility. And 
the overall lack of courtesy in the way that we treat each other. What used to be reserved for little children, wrongly so, of piling on people when they're down and hurt and seeking to injure them for sport has now become common, not only at the lowest levels of the younger age kids, but from the very top from politicians to athletes and celebrities to leaders all around the world, you have this, this drive to punish people that they disagree with or people that are seen to have failed in their eyes in this sort of ever-moving target of what's acceptable in our culture. If someone steps out of line, they're to be punished. And if you're paying attention, you're noticing that a religion has been formed to a degree in our world, but it's a religion that has no hope because there's no way of salvation outside of conformity. That is, there's no hope for different people. If you don't agree with the cultural norms in terms of morality and in terms of sort of worldview issues, then not only are you wrong, you're unworthy of being in this society. In fact, you should die. You hear the language of cancel culture today. In fact, it's not new anymore. Actually, it's several years old now. But the cancel, cancel culture has, has become probably the greatest example of depravity in our modern age. I wouldn't look just to the failures of morality, both in terms of marriage or sexuality or gender or in terms of worldliness. Those are all wonderful examples of depravity in our world. But I don't think there's a better example of depravity than the desire to absolutely ruin someone you disagree with. Think about that impulse. As I was thinking about this particular text and praying for it as I was preparing this study for our church and even meditating on it since that time, I, I've been brought back to this question. What right does another human being have to cancel another human being for uh, something they disagree with or even for an actual offense, for someone actually hurting you or perhaps sinning against you or doing something to make your family suffer or loss. What right does a human being have to cancel another person? Well, here's the way the question came in my mind. There's only one human being ever in all of eternity who would be fully justified in canceling another person. Someone that offended him or rejected him or hated him. Only one person would be fully justified in doing that. That'd be, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. You gotta ask yourself this question, did Jesus, the only person that would ever be justified to do so, did he ever cancel someone? Did he ever do that? How did Jesus treat the people that hated him? How did he treat people that disagreed with him? How did he treat people that thought he was wrong or that just outright rejected him? He treated them with love. And the best word to use, a Bible word to describe the way he responded to those people that hated him and mistreated him is the word meekness. Meekness is a character quality of Jesus Christ that according to the New Testament, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, is supposed to be part of every Christian's life. As followers of Jesus Christ, we, we are meek ones. We're supposed to be known as being meek. Now, let me work out that word a little bit more because it's a difficult word to get our arms around. What do I mean by being meek? Well, I said, of course, it's, it's probably easily definable by saying it's the opposite of what you see in our culture, the harshness that sort of marks our world from top to bottom. But here's a one-word definition outside of that. The one word, and a Bible word, the one word I'd use to define the word meekness would be the word gentleness. Gentleness. So ask yourself this question this morning. You're here, no doubt, mostly. I would assume that you all are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You identify with Jesus. You say, I'm a Christian. Well, ask yourself this question. Are you harsh? But here's the, the thing about that question. Are you harsh? You can't answer that question because you'll be the last person to see that you're harsh. You have to ask people around you that you love. Ask them if you're harsh and they'll be willing to hear the answer. Gentleness is a gift, rather a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is, it is something that happens in the life of the Christian walking in the Spirit. It comes out of us. I could define it further by giving you sort of a more complicated Mark definition. Let me give it to you. Uh, here it is for gentleness. Gentleness is humble love towards others in response to weakness, offense, or failure that helps other people. I'll read it again in case you happen to be writing it down. Meekness is humble love towards others. It begins in humility. 
It's a type of love given to other people in response. That is, meekness is something that's drawn out of you. Meekness is not something that you just are on your own individually. It's something that comes out of you in response to certain things, in response to weakness, someone else's weakness, or offense, someone else's sin against you, or failure, or failure uh, that, that helps and builds hope in other people. I can, I can sort of even stretch it beyond that. Uh, meekness is not weakness in the sense of running away from people when they hurt you or offend you. That's not what meekness means. Meekness is not merely being afraid of interaction or being afraid of conflict. Meekness was used, in fact, this word that's used in the New Testament for meekness was a word that was used for breaking a wild horse. It's the idea that the horse, while broken, you're able to put a, a bridle on it, a saddle on it, you're able to ride it. That horse still retains all the power it had before it was broken. But now that power is under control. It's still there, but it's totally under control. That's the way this word works. That's how meekness works. You may have the ability to be harsh towards someone else. You may have the ability to cancel them or crush them or to respond with just absolute anger and rage to something that they've done. But you now are like a horse. You're under control. That takes us to the the fruit of self-control, also an example or a witness of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. The definition from the Greek dictionary for the Greek word that's used for this in the New Testament is this. In fact, I was really struck by this. Meekness is being not overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance, not being overly impressed with yourself. And you're going to hear that in just a few moments. Pride is the number one enemy of meekness. You'll never be meek like Jesus if you have pride. It's impossible. Humility is a foundation where meekness comes out. And the last one I would add to it before we get into this is that meekness is the opposite of violence and vengeance. Now let's get to our text. So Isaiah 42 is in the middle of this book. It's actually towards the end. And If you know anything about Isaiah, and I'm sure under some of the wonderful godly teachers you have here, you have learned a lot about this book over the years. Well, if you know that, if you know about this book, you know after chapter 40, the tone of this book changes. Isaiah the prophet was writing to people that were about to be enslaved for generations in a foreign land because of their absolute determination to disobey God. No matter how much God gave them opportunity, they refused to obey him. And so God had promised long ago, and now it was coming, they would be enslaved in a nation called Babylon for at least two generations. Most of them would never go home to their homeland. Many would be born in this foreign land. All of their system of worship was going to be stripped from them. Their whole life, essentially, would be undone. Isaiah was writing to them, especially after chapter 40, pointing them off into the future, into the future where many of them would not return, but where their children, their grandchildren would come out of this slavery and they would have essentially another chance, another chance to honor God and walk in obedience. And we know the rest of the story. They didn't do so hot with that second chance either. And and that's a good principle. Christians aren't just people that get a second chance. We, We don't do good with the second chance either, by the way. We, need, we don't even need a third or a fourth chance. We, we need Jesus just to, just to give us an infinite supply of chances. And Israel failed even in their second chance there. But after chapter 40, Isaiah begins to write to them about the far off future for people like us. The coming of the Messiah. The real hope of all of Israel. In chapter 40, we begin a series of four major sections in this book. That, that point towards the coming Messiah. He's described with the word in verse number one, servant. Do you see it? Isaiah 42, verse one, behold, my servant. This is God the Father, Yahweh is speaking. Behold, Isaiah is calling the attention of Israel to what God is saying. He's saying, look at my servant. Who's my servant? Well, there are four sections in the book of Isaiah from this point forward where the servant has to be Jesus. But there are times where the servant in Isaiah is not Jesus. In fact, it's Israel. Look over at chapter 41, verse number 8. Here's an example. 41, verse number 8. But you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. So throughout this book, he goes back and forth, describing Israel as a servant as well. But when he described Israel as a servant, that servant is always sinful and fearful and disobedient. And not committed to the covenant. And that servant is in need of redemption. 
But then in these four big sections, the first one here in verse 42, we hear of a different kind of servant, one that's obedient and one that's faithful and one that is holy and one that has not come in need of redemption but come to give redemption to Israel that was in need. This servant that's coming is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that for a multitude of reasons. One of those is the way that these sections are quoted in the New Testament by Jesus himself. The most famous one is in Luke chapter 4, a text I even preached here, I believe, many, many years ago, where Jesus turns to Isaiah 61 and says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And it was one of these servant passages Jesus said was about himself. Now, in this text, the primary meaning here, the primary focus of Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, and really even 1 through 4, is of the coming of the Messiah, yes, but there's also sort of a picture here of Israel seeing a leader come that was unlike all of the leaders of the day. The leaders of this day were bloodthirsty, they were self-promoting, they were prideful, horrible people. Men like Nebuchadnezzar, men even like Cyrus, who is prophesied here in the chapter preceding this one. These, these were men that would come and establish their rule with swords. You would bow down and you would serve them or you would lose your head. You, you were going to come into their kingdom whether you liked it or not. But Isaiah begins here in chapter 42 talking about a king that would come in a different way. He wasn't going to come and demand people follow him in that way. Jesus didn't come with a sword. He, he didn't come uh, bringing about sort of a militaristic rule and forcing people to bow down. Now, that's what Israel thought, by the way. Israel was completely expecting a Messiah to come and do just that. Do you remember the triumphal entry? Remember when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that last week of his life? Do you remember that word? We use it around Palm Sunday, that word that the crowds were crying out when they laid down the palm branches. They cried out what? Hosanna! Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means, that Hebrew word? It means save us now. They weren't looking for an eternal savior. They weren't calling for eternal salvation. They were ushering in what they thought to be the king that was about to go slaughter the Caesar and give them the rule once again. But Isaiah tells us that a Messiah that would come would come in a very different way. And that's where we get this idea of meekness. This section introduces a king unlike any other king of his day, a ruler unlike any other ruler of his day, a ruler that was coming with the character of God. We can see the meekness of Jesus Christ here, and I want to look to his example and pull out, pull out a few characteristics of meekness that we should apply to our own lives. So here's the first one. Meekness pleases God. Meekness pleases God. Remember, meekness is gentle, gentleness. Meekness is not being harsh. Meekness is not responding with vengeance and violence when someone disagrees with you or offends you. Meekness is not canceling others. It's being gentle and humble. Well, it turns out that pleases God. Look at verse 1. Behold my servant, Yahweh is speaking, whom I uphold. God the Father upholds the Son. He calls him my elect one. That's an important word because it means that Jesus was always God's plan. God was never in a panic, even in the garden. I found over many years now of ministry, the most common question, one of the most common questions I get, and almost always from a young child, is, Pastor Mark, what, why did God allow this all to happen if he knew Adam and Eve was going to sin? That's a common question. Maybe you've asked it as well. And one of the things I tried to point out is that this was always God's plan to bring about a savior and to bring about a redeemed people so they could worship him and glorify him and love him and be loved by him. That was always God's plan from the start. My elect one in whom my soul delights. So whoever the servant is, the father delights in him. Now we know from the New Testament that the father delights in the son in many places. Think of Matthew 3, it is baptism. In verse 17, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And what does it say next? Of whom I am well pleased. The father's pleased with the son. So way back now, 700 years before Jesus was born, we're hearing of someone that's going to come and the father will be pleased with him. How about Mark 1.11, same section. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I 
am well pleased. And there are many other examples of that in the Bible. But the father is pleased with the son in everything that he does and the way that he speaks and treats people. But here in verse number one, it's in the context of the meekness of Christ. The meekness of the way the Messiah would come would be pleasing to the father. In fact, Jesus would say in the Gospel of John that the Father was pleased with everything that he did. Look at John 8, 29. It says, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone for I always do those things that please him. That's important because when we're looking at the way Jesus interacted with people and treated people, we're looking at what God wants. We're always asking that question. What does a father want? How does God want me to respond to my family member that's hurt me or my boss or coworker that's betrayed me or they've stolen from me? Or how am I supposed to respond to my family members that now think that what I believe is wicked and evil and now think that I hate them or, or to a culture that's turned on me to values that have sort of been ripped away from me? How, how am I supposed to respond? What would the father have me to do? We'd have us to look to Jesus because he's pleased in the way that Jesus responded. He'd have us to do something very similar. So Isaiah begins with showing us how the father is pleased. And he does that right before he tells us how the Lord Jesus Christ would come. But think about this in terms of the believer. Turn, turn to, or to Matthew chapter 5, to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse number 5, we've got this word meek, a, a verse that you're probably very familiar with. But listen to what Jesus says here. In Matthew 5, 5, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now remember, the Beatitudes are not necessarily characteristics of Christians to aspire to, as in multiple classes of Christians. So there's some Christians that aren't meek, and you know, they're still going to get to heaven. But then there's these others that are meek, and they're going to get a special spot in heaven. That's not the way the Sermon on the Mount works. This is a description of actual Christians. All actual Christians are these things. We are the meek ones. So Jesus, who came in meekness, now calls the church to follow in his footsteps because this pleases the Father. That means, beloved, that when you and I respond like our world responds, whether it be something small or whether it be something big, it's displeasing to the Lord. And that's tough for us. Because there's this thing about us, this sort of ingrained justice that comes with being a Christian that makes us think, well, if we're defending God, if we're standing up for God's word, if we're standing up for Christian morals and values, then it's okay to be a jerk. But it's not. It's never pleasing to the Father to be harsh to people. Think about that. It's never pleasing to the Father to respond like the world does. What's different about us if, if it's not just that we believe different things, if we don't even have the self-control to not respond like the world does? There are Christians today that are attempting to cancel people in Jesus' name. But beloved, I would admonish you on the authority of the word of God that Christians have no business seeking to do this. We should be gentle. And we should be meek, even with those that disagree with us, even with those that have hurt us and offended us. Secondly, not only does meekness please God, and that's what we want to do. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether I'm at home or away, I make it my aim to be well-pleasing to him. That's what we should want, right? We want to be pleasing to the Father. There's a way in which we're pleased, uh, the Father's pleased with us. We just heard that sung by Melody and Zandra, Right? We were his enemies, but now we've been brought close. We're seated at his table. When he looks to us, he sees Jesus. We've been given the righteousness of Jesus, right? So he's pleased with us. But there's another way in which he calls us to be pleasing in the way that we live this life. What we say, what we do, how we treat people, how we respond to things. So meekness pleases the Father, but secondly, meekness is spirit-empowered. Meekness is spirit-empowered. Go to the second part of verse 1. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, there's a theme in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 11. There's a theme in Isaiah that this one that would come, uh, this root of Jesse, this branch, this one that he says a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, the wonderful counselor, mighty God. There's a theme in Isaiah that teaches that he will do all these things through the Spirit. 
If you go to Isaiah 11, verse number two, he says this about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now go back to Isaiah 42. The father, Yahweh, is saying of his servant, his elect one, the one that was always his plan, the one he delights in, that the spirit would be upon him. And he connects that to the work that he would do. This is important because meekness is only something you and I can do through the power of the Spirit. Sometimes we do this. I don't know if you've ever said this. I've heard a lot of people say this and I've done it before in my life. Well, that's just not the way that God made me. Now, don't go blaming God on your sinfulness. Don't go blaming God for being a jerk to people. God, God has nothing to do with that. But sometimes we do that. Sometimes, well, that, that, that's just who I am. Well, that's why Jesus died because of who you are. He died to change us. If I am by nature and by my flesh a harsh person, well, that, that's part of why Jesus died. And he's given me the spirit to change that, not to lean into it. Remember, in the world, what you and I are seeing with this major shift in morality is people finding their identity in their depravity. That is, they're looking to their sinful compulsions and feelings and saying, ah, oh, this is who I am. This must be how God made me. But beloved, that's not how God makes people. That's what came as a result of the fall. Jesus comes to redeem us out of those sinful desires, out of that depravity, not to lean into it. So as believers who've been redeemed, we have no business leaning back into those desires. The good news, though, is that it means that even if you struggle with being a harsh person, there's help for you in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has come to strengthen us, to help us to walk in a way that honors the Father. I've put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, justice to the Gentiles here would definitely have a reference to the future judgment of Babylon, whom God had used to judge Israel. But I think it points forward even to the future return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah's coming would be described in Isaiah in two ways, his first coming and his second coming. Y'all believe Jesus is coming again, right? We still believe that? Amen. It's still in the Bible. We still believe that part. But when he comes, he's going to establish this justice. There's a picture of that right here, but he's gonna do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is interesting, turn over to Galatians chapter five. I want you to see, remember that one word definition I gave you for meekness? Who knows what it was, the one word definition? Gentleness, that's right. So go to Galatians chapter five, and look at chapter five, verse 23. Galatians chapter five, verse number 23. In this section, we're learning about the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, there's kind of close to it, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if you and I are going to be meek like Jesus, we're going to have to have the Spirit of God at work in us. We're going to have to bear those fruits. And this is something that I struggled to understand for many, many years. In fact, this probably took me 20 years to get my arms around. I struggled to understand how do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? Does it just come by virtue of being a Christian or is there something else that sort of leads to those things being manifest in our life? We'll go to Galatians 5. You'll actually see the answer of it there in Galatians 5, uh, beginning in verse number 6. But let me look at uh, Galatians 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I often wonder, what does that mean? Does that mean like some sort of like really spiritual experience where I kind of just like pray myself into a weird trance or something and say, now I'm in the spirit? Is it something that overcomes me and sort of takes control? What does that mean? Well, look at the language. The language could not be any clearer or any simpler. Walk in the spirit. Now, we're commanded in multiple other places to walk in a, in a manner worthy with the calling with which we've been called. That has to do with the way that we uh, sort of can, can carry out our life, the way that we conduct our business, the way that we think, the way that we behave. So the idea here with walking in the Spirit is for me to daily, sometimes moment by moment, make the decision, I'm going to do what the Spirit wants me to do. 
I'm reading the scriptures, I'm bringing the word of God into my heart, right? Uh, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's the word of God that's inside of me that the spirit of God works with and works through. So I've got the word of God in me. I'm cultivating a close relationship with Christ by prayer. And now I have this sort of sensitive spirit. I know what honors God, what dishonors God, what is fleshly, what is not. And so I'm making this decision. I know I'm going to walk in the spirit. My flesh wants me to be harsh right now. My flesh wants me to snap back right now. My flesh wants me to try to cancel this person, but I know that's not walking in the spirit, so instead I'm gonna go to the Lord. Lord, forgive me, help me to overcome this temptation. And that, by the way, is what it really looks like to see the power of the Holy Spirit. You wanna see the power of the Holy Spirit? Don't look to someone flopping around on the ground. Look to someone staring down the barrel of temptation and overcoming it through his power. That's supernatural. That's something that lasts. That is the DNA of Jesus Christ. So walking in the spirit here is what it looks like to bear this fruit of gentleness. I've gotta make these daily decisions. Mark, well what if I struggle with that? Well, that's where repentance comes into the Christian life. That's where confession comes in the Christian life. Where I go back to the Lord, Lord forgive me. Lord forgive me, Lord help me. Lord forgive me, Lord help me. Remember, none of the commands in the New Testament were given to the Holy Spirit. So we don't pray for him to obey for us. They were all given to us to obey with his help. The meekness is no exception. We must pursue meekness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, go back to Isaiah 42. Meekness pleases God, it's spirit in power, but thirdly, it is humility in action. It is humility in action. Look at verse number two. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now later, this will be applied. Jesus will actually quote this verse later to describe the way he would interact with the religious leaders of his day, the first century. Jesus was not gonna come. He could have shut down the Pharisees. He could have ended the Sadducees. He could have shut down the Sanhedrin. He could have stripped Rome of its power. He could have taken control like that if he wanted to. Absolutely could have ended all of it. He could have ended temple worship in an instant. Could have done it all, but he didn't. He did not come like all these other leaders. Look at verse two. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He did not come like the Nebuchadnezzars demanding that you submit to him. Instead, he he died and then he called you to come to him by faith. That's very different, isn't it? That's very different. This is an important thing. That's why it's very, it, it, it's complicated to use this language, a Christian nation. Now that makes sense in terms of a Muslim nation because a Muslim nation is just, it, that, that makes sense because you're born into Islam just by birth, natural birth. If you're born to a, a, a Muslim family, you are now part of the Muslim community. But that's not how it works here. None of our Christians are born into Christ. They have to be born again a second time, right? See how that works? What Jesus came not demanding and making people immediately part of his kingdom. He came to die to give this opportunity for them to come. Very different, isn't it? Very different. That's the idea. This is his meekness. Jesus came unlike every other ruler and leader of the day. He came in humility. Pastor Cody read from Philippians 2. That's probably the best text to talk about the humility of Jesus. Look at verse 6 through 8. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He could have come as a king. Would Jesus have been justified if he had done that? Would he, would he, could he rightfully have done that? Absolutely, but he did not. He chose instead to be humble. He took the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. His humility was expressed in his meekness. That's what meekness is. It's humility in action. You don't tell someone you're humble. You show someone that you're humble. And one of the primary ways that humility comes out is in being gentle, not being harsh. You can't say you're humble and be harsh. You can't say you're humble and be a jerk to people. You can't say you're humble and cancel people. That means you're not humble because pride is the number one enemy to meekness. Pride is the number one enemy to gentleness. Pride is the reason why you have contentions in your marriage. 
Pride is the reason why you have contentions in your home with your children or grandchildren, with your parents. Pride is the reason why we have contention. In fact, the King James says that. Contention cometh only by pride. It's pride that keeps us in the fight and keeps us from walking away. It's pride that keeps us from doing what Jesus commanded, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving our tunic also. It's pride that keeps us from doing that. And when I fail to walk in the spirit, guess what's gonna happen? That pride is gonna take over. Walking in the spirit is the way that I work out that pride and put it to death each day. We have this inclination in our flesh over it. The more time we spend out of the word of God and not in the secret place of prayer, the more time we spend outside of the context of the fellowship of the church, the more highly we think of ourselves. And the more highly we think of ourselves, guess what? The more pride takes root. And the more pride takes root, the more unlikely it is that we will be gentle to other people. Because we'll see people as people that exist for us. To make us happy, to please us, do what we want. Why can't people just do what we want? Why can't people just say what we want them to say? Why can't people just act the way that they should act? That's pride. Pride is the impulse behind those thoughts, right? Gentleness comes to humility. In fact, this is probably, in my understanding of the scriptures, this is probably the greatest example of humility in the context of relationships, being gentle. You show me a gentle person, if they're genuine and not just manipulating people, if they're genuine, I'll show you someone that is humble. And the thing is, we're supposed to be the humble ones. You can't come to Christ. You can't come into these waters with pride. That's what these waters mean. That's what it means to come into the kingdom of heaven. You have to come on your knees. You have to come through the confession of your sin. I, I can't come to Christ outside of recognizing by the Spirit's work through the Word of God that I am a sinner that cannot save myself. That I am guilty. The cross is a wrecking ball for pride. And that's why the idea of someone who's at the one hand claiming Christ and the other hand a prideful jerk, these two things don't go together. Because the cross rips that out of us. The flesh wants to bring it back, but that's why we've got to put it to death each day. And beloved, I know it's difficult. It's tough in my own life. It's tough in all of our lives. But we have to work hard to put it to death. Pride leads to harshness. Fourthly, and I'll end with this. Number one, meekness pleases God. Number two, meekness is spirit-empowered. Number three, meekness is humility in action. And number four, meekness helps others. And here's where you're gonna see all the meekness of Jesus right here in verse three. Meekness helps others. Others. That's what meek people do. That's what gentleness does. It looks to other people and looks for ways to help them. Does our world do that today? If our world disagrees with you, does it have something in its heart to sort of come alongside you and help you? No. It wants to ruin you and squash you and erase you and silence your voice. But meekness looks to people to help them. It looks to people that have sinned against them or betrayed them or disappointed them or hurt them in some way or someone that just disagrees with them and looks for ways to love them and show the love of Christ and to perhaps serve them or even sacrifice for them and give themselves for them. These are all impulses of a gentle, meek person. Someone that's like Jesus. You say, Mark, prove it. Okay, well, let's look at the text. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Now that's helpful because that tells us that whoever he's talking about in verse three is the same person he talked about in verse one. His servant, whom he upholds, his elect one, in whom his soul delights, the one that's empowered by the spirit of God, that one will bring justice. That same one who will not come like the leaders of the day, crying out and demanding people come into his kingdom, uh, causing violence with his voice and his actions, but rather, instead, he would look to people that are weak, the bruised reed. Look to people that are sinners, the smoking flax, that are ready to give up, and he would seek to help them. The bruised reed metaphor here is brilliant. I love it. I've always been drawn to it, but I didn't understand it for many years. The bruised reed he will not break. Now, every guy in here, I suppose, has a two by four in their garage somewhere or a shed, right? You always keep a two by four or several on hand. And whenever something is needed to be built, in my mind, I'm thinking, I've got a two by four for that. I'm ready to go. It can be done. The reed was the two by four of the ancient day. It was a building material and it was everywhere. 
But a building material like a rotted two by four or one of them Home Depot specials with one of them curves in it, they're useless because they don't have the type of integrity you need to build with. A bruised reed. And so what would you do with a two by four that had a big knot and a big turn in it? You'd break it in half, cut it, throw it away, you get rid of it. Well, same thing with this bruised reed. If it's useless, it doesn't look like it's got the utility it needs, I just break it and throw it off and burn it. Jesus would come and he's talking about people here. Jesus wasn't interested in the two by fours of the day. He wasn't picking up reeds and making sure he protected reeds. He's talking about people. It's a metaphor. The bruised reeds, the people that are not right, the people that have some problems, the people that are struggling, he's going to look to them and instead of breaking them, casting them away like the leaders of the day took the weak and killed them, Jesus wouldn't do so. In fact, he looked to help the weak. And beloved, that's what meek people do. With the Spirit's help, we look to weak people and we look to help them. And, and, and help them doesn't mean to be a jerk also in a really weird condescending Christian way in the sense of help them to think like us. That's not what I mean. We just help them. Even if we never get anything in return because that's what Christ taught us to do. We help them even if they hurt us. Just like Jesus Christ taught us to do. The second one there is very similar. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. In those days a lamp was very very much like a little sort of uh, earthen clay uh, flat piece shaped like an oval and just had a little dip that was kind of burred into the bottom there and they would put some oil in there and a little wick and burn it and that would be the lamp. And once that wick was all about burned out and the oil was all about gone, they would just toss it and get a new one. Started to smoke, it was the end of it. It didn't have any fuel left. It wasn't gonna burn anymore. You gotta get a new one to keep the light going. Jesus would come to that smoldering wick and he would do like you do at a campfire, about to go out, he'd fan it and blow on it and try to bring it life again. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to the weak people that were struggling and looking to give up to give them life through the gospel. Boy, that's the opposite of canceling, isn't it? That is the exact opposite, coming to help people that are about to go out and instead of putting them out like our world is doing, stomping them out, actually blowing new life into them. That's what meekness does. It seeks to help other people. You gotta imagine that Israel was confused by this. It makes sense that they didn't recognize Jesus when he came. They didn't understand what to do with all this. They had nothing in their life, nothing in their experience to point to to say, okay, so the Messiah is going to be like this guy. There, there was no one. You can't compare Jesus to anybody. And when Jesus came, you know what he did? He perfectly fulfilled Isaiah 41, 1 through 3. Do you know that? Perfectly. You know what he does today? He still fulfills these verses. Today he does this same thing. And that's why we preach the gospel, isn't it? We're preaching the gospel looking for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, smoldering flaxes. That's what we're doing because we know we've got a Savior who's not going to seek to break them or snuff them out. He's going to seek to repair them, to give them life by giving them the opportunity to come to salvation. So as we come to a close, I want to begin with that question. This servant, who we see in verse number one, he came for a purpose. It wasn't just to be a different kind of leader. And it wasn't just to lead a different kind of kingdom. It was to build a kingdom out of bruised reeds and smoldering flaxes. It was to save sinners. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, like Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and the others, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. God knows exactly how sinful you are to degrees you'll never understand. Even into eternity, I don't believe we'll understand the depths of our own depravity. I don't think we'll understand what it means for a God to love us so much to send his perfect son to come and die for us. Did you know what 2 Corinthians 5 says? He, the father, made him the son who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't think we'll ever understand the love of a father to put our sin on his righteous son so that we could get his righteousness. And beloved, that's offered to you this morning. 
So if you're here and you've not yet come to Christ, and little ones, I want you to hear me. If you're here and you've not yet come to Christ, you're not hoping in him for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus invites you to come. In your weakness, in your sinfulness, he invites you to come. This is why he came. To save a people. To call them his own. To give them forgiveness, full and free. And to bring them to dwell with him forever. So if you're here today and you've not yet come to Christ, I want to encourage you, I want to implore you, beg you as Paul says, be reconciled to God. That's why he sent Jesus. In a little while, Pastor Cody will give you a chance to do that and I pray that you will. And I'll be praying in my seat that the Spirit of God, here's what I pray every Sunday for our church. I don't always tell them, but sometimes I do. I pray the Spirit of God will so destroy people with a conviction of their sin that they will be utterly broken and unable to take a step out of the building without running to the cross. That's what I pray. That's what all of our pastors pray. That's what our people are praying for the people that are there on Sundays that are lost, that the Spirit of God would devastate them. Jesus is not just a good idea you should try. He is your only hope, but only once you see your sinfulness. And so we pray that you do this morning. But for us that are here that do know the Lord, I've got a couple of simple thoughts. The first one is this. We as believers must pursue meekness in faith. Here, this whole picture is about the meekness of Christ. We see in Matthew chapter five, the call to meekness. We see in Galatians chapter five, the work of the spirit of God, bearing out this gentleness in our heart, this self-control. This is something we must pursue. So ask yourself the question I started with. Are you a harsh person? And if you say, well, of course I'm not, then stop and ask someone else. Ask someone that you love that's not afraid to tell you the truth. Because if you're super harsh, they might be afraid to tell you, by the way. Ask them, am I harsh? And if you love Jesus, you should want to know the answer this morning. If you love the Lord, you should be humble and ready to hear it. And if you are, I've got good news for you. There's grace for harsh Christians too. Did you know that? Can you believe he still gives us grace after we come to him? Can you believe that? Have y'all heard about this Jesus? He's still forgiving us. It's incredible. His mercies are new for you and I every morning. And so there's hope for you if you've been harsh. I would encourage you, though, to follow the, the course the Bible gives for all Christians when we sin. Confess that sin. Give it to the Lord. The Bible says if we, that's a personal plural pronoun written by a Christian, if we confess our sins, he, the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive you. And now, it's not just that you would pray, God, now make me be something I don't want to be. Now you have the responsibility to walk in the Spirit. Every, you're going to have an opportunity to be harsh before you leave this building. I almost guarantee it. If you've got kids, I guarantee it. <laughs> you're going to have an opportunity to be harsh before this day is over. I know it. And you're going to have a decision. In your mind, maybe before you came today, you wouldn't even think of, twice about the decision. You would just be harsh. But you want to be like Jesus. And he's given you the spirit to help you. Thirdly, I want you to turn to a verse that you probably aren't familiar with in Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter three. The church must be known for its meekness in this harsh world. Now I'm gonna say some unpopular things before I go, but that's the beauty of being able to just preach and leave and go home to South Florida and Pastor Cody can deal with all the mess. But listen, Christians are supposed to be known as meek. All right, I'm gonna say this, you ready? The church is not forming a militia to go against the culture, all right? The church around the world for generations since the cross has been persecuted heavily. And you know what's happened every time it's happened? The church has become more like Jesus. And it's grown. And the Lord has pruned it. And I believe the Lord's been pruning the last 18 months. This ch the church in America, the American church, has been pruned heavily. Because a lot of the garbage and nonsense and false gospel that people have been passing off as churches... People have no interest in that stuff anymore. It's been fading. And as the pressure mounts for people that believe the Bible like you do, like I do, like we do together, as the pressure mounts for believing what the Bible teaches about very important things, and that persecution increases, the Lord will keep working. He'll keep strengthening us. But that impulse for us to fight back is not from Jesus. It's the flesh. 
The world should look to us and see us not readying our arms, but being meek. Jesus could have fought and won himself, just like that. And indeed, beloved, he's coming to do that. You know, we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and I've been shocked by some. Not really shocked, but it's been, it's, uh, it, it's really been working on my heart and mind lately. I've been writing a commentary on every word of Revelation now for two years, I think, and I'm in chapter 18, halfway through it. And you know what I found? When Jesus comes back, we get invited to rule and reign with him, but you know what we don't get invited to do? Pour out judgment. Did you know that? He's not enlisting us into his army. The song was wrong. We're not in his army to bring about justice upon lost people. What he's called us to do and ordained us to do in this hour is to pray for them and preach the gospel and love them meekly and entrust them to the hands of a creator who is faithful to do what is right. The idea of the lost world around us being judged should not excite us. It should break our hearts and it should move us to evangelism to bring the message of this hope to the world. I want you to see something, and I'll end with this verse, I promise. Zephaniah chapter three, verse number 12. I turn to Zechariah. Boy, that's not the right one. Zephaniah chapter three, verse number 12. This section, by the way, is also about the servant of Jesus Christ. It's about the faithful remnant that God will leave one day. It will include the church off in the future. But I want you to hear what he says in verse number 12. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people. You know who that is? That's the people of God. God calls us a meek and humble people. That's how we should be known. Now in the flesh, we won't be known that way, but with God's help, by seeking to walk in the spirit, we can be. So Father, that's my prayer. Help me, Lord, to be meek. Help me, Father, to fight the temptation to be prideful, which is so strong and so present in my own life. Help me, Father, to be gentle and not harsh with my family, with my wife, with my children, with others around me in my life. And I recognize, Lord, it's not something I merely pray away and, and pray and you just supernaturally remove from my life. You've not commanded the Holy Spirit to be gentle for me. You've empowered me with the Holy Spirit and commanded me to be gentle. So, Lord, help me to make the hard decisions to fight against the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk in the Spirit, to choose to do what I know the Spirit wants me to do and rely upon His help to do it and be a meek person, a gentle person, because that's what our Savior was. And, Lord, may our church reflect that way. May this wonderful church that you love, may it grow in meekness and develop a glorious testimony in doing so. And Father, for the ones that could be here that don't yet know Christ, may you so thoroughly convict them of their sinfulness and need for a Savior that they couldn't take one step out of this building without running to the cross. And Lord, would you save them today? In Jesus' name, amen.